Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. How's it going this week on the Nonprofit News Feed podcast brought to you by Whole Whale? We're bringing you some news from May 1st. First off, it's May. Wow, there you go. And we're also discussing a kind of uh, ongoing story where Pantheon, a very popular hosting platform, is facing some backlash. So we're going to try to suss out what's what's going on and, and, and where we see that story right now. Nick, how's it going? It's going good, George. It's been a weird day. Like every other hour, it alternates in this city between sunny and like the dementors are coming to eat your children. <laughs> right now, it's it's dark and, and brooding, but hopefully the sun comes out soon. But back to what you were talking about, our first story of this week comes uh, from reporting by ARS Technica that says that Pantheon heroes are departing as the platform faces backlash for hosting hateful websites. So in recent weeks, controversy has erupted primarily over LinkedIn, where website operations platform Pantheon is hosting websites for influential anti-LGBTQ and anti-immigrant organizations, including organizations such as the Alliance Defending Freedom, ADF, which is designated as a hate group by the SPLC or Southern Poverty Law Center. So the backlash began on a LinkedIn thread, which George, I'm sure you've read more of, will go into is quite spicy. Several developers and Pantheon supporters voiced their concerns as... Pantheon heroes, which are essentially developer-oriented cheerleaders for Pantheon, some of which have have withdrawn from the program in protest because Pantheon co-founder Josh Koenig confirmed that the platform would continue hosting the controversial websites, citing their commitment to being an open platform. Some pointed out that Pantheon's terms of service prohibit abusive or offensive content, And the company's position on content states that they generally refrain from moderating customer content, however. So a lot of this controversy seems to be trickling down into the Pantheon Heroes program, which was kind of developed by Pantheon to have these developer-oriented, again, kind of like brand ambassadors almost for the, the service. However, since Pantheon's decision to continue hosting these, quote, uh, hate websites, several developers have quit that program, expressing disappointment and feeling conflicted. So George, this is complicated. And I want to hear your take. But I think the the overall gist of this is moderation is a little bit more complicated of an issue when you move away from platforms like Facebook and Twitter, and you start talking about services like Pantheon or Cloudflare, kind of more like web infrastructure type companies. What's your take on this controversy? This is a this is a tough one and I want to, you know, be careful how I represent like what's going on here at a couple levels. Like at, at one level, I have to say I I genuinely believe in the open web. I fear censorship even when I feel like it's very justified. And let's be honest. All roads lead to AWS. 
or Azure or Google hosting. Like at some point you are sitting on a server with somebody that you disagree with. Like that's just factually accurate. Like even all Pantheon customers, like it's all backed by AWS. The place where I think that this goes into a different direction is that in the LinkedIn threads that are going on there is brought up and we link to this. So you can kind of just, it's interesting from a PR messaging standpoint as well, communications style. This is brought up by uh, a director of strategy at Lullabot, uh, a guy named Greg Dunlap, who is uh, explicit in saying his views are his own. His views are his own when he's bringing this up. But essentially, you know, Josh Koenig, the co-founder of Pantheon, comes onto this thread and essentially says, our roots are open source, open web. We are used by a variety of range of causes, campaigns for political actors. It's challenging when people disagree with uh, deeply on a personal level to use our technology, but we are neither an advocacy organization nor content moderation business. Uh, I appreciate the frustration, the satisfying to a lot of folks. And the place where this sort of falls down a little bit is in two areas. One, they had previously taken down the sort of like, you know, pro, pro-Russia pro groups that had been using the site for, as they probably aligned with mis- or disinformation about uh, the conflict there. Uh, the other part here that's important to note is that it feels like, and now that's a, you know, I'm using the word feels, which is not sort of you know, viable in a court of law, but it feels like as a member of the community, and I know Pantheon, we've used Pantheon. I was, you know, one of the earliest users, uh, is that with, especially the heroes program started in 2019, uh, the application is essentially asking for volunteers to give their time toward what was originally, I think, an expectation of a more progressively used platform for social impact. And, you know, when you begin to leverage that type of goodwill for social impact for a community that disproportionately, I would say, identifies as progressive, and suddenly you you host willingly, knowingly a, a group like Alliance Defending Freedom, which, you know, you can basically take one quick look at Wikipedia to see that uh, it's freedom as long as you're not in the LGBTQ plus community. That is, it's going to cause backlash. So you're you're welcome to take the, hey, this is open source, this is open web, but if you're a progressively built platform originally around that community and that type of promise, you know, like you say, it, it's an open market. You can make your choices. And I, I think there's a lot of, you know, heroes that may be tired of donating, because that's the word I'm using, donating, volunteering, giving away their reputation to promote it their time to answer questions for a platform that would now like to play by different rules and they're more than welcome to. But you're going to have to, I think, face a, a bit of this backlash. And this is uh, just interesting to watch because we get and have talked about a lot of cause washing. I'm going to be cause related when it suits me on maybe a day of gay pride or on an Earth Day and I'm going to wave whatever flag makes me look good in front of whatever customer base, and then tomorrow I'm going to change. And I think we're watching one such organization maybe get caught in needing to define their policies and clearly present to communities that, frankly, uh, are paying attention to a bit more than that 
what is being said versus what is being done. Mm, George, I appreciate that analysis and just the nuance around this situation. This is kind of a tricky one and a little bit distinct, both because of where Pantheon fits and more like of an infrastructure tool, as well as Pantheon's branding and, you know, just in engendering support in that community. And, you know, we don't, we obviously don't condone anti-LGBT hate at all. My, my personal opinion is, I think if there is hate or like extremism, these companies should should consider taking it down. But I also kind of wonder about are those infrastructure companies walking into the minefield that is moderation that platforms like Facebook have not even figured out yet. And, and whether that's a net good or a net positive, what happens when you extrapolate that across not just the United States, but across like the entire internet over the entire world. I think it's a complicated questions, but I appreciate that nuance there. And I think in this, again, my personal opinion is this situation, I would agree that it seems that it did violate the, the terms of service there. And they certainly alienated their supporters and probably a net good for them to take it down here, but uh, certainly complicated questions. I mean, if you want to get even more confusing, the SPLC, right, that has the designated hate group list, I am pretty sure the last time I checked actually uses Pantheon for, for hosting, I believe. It, it's that, I mean, there's a lot of groups that, you know, end up on sort of platforms at some point, right? Like if I look up and down your stack, you mentioned Cloudflare. Like uh, I think there's those two elements that you're balancing between. Like is this an open web debate or did we potentially choose you as a business decision, like as an agency or an advocate because we quietly believe that your expressed mission is disproportionately helping progressive organizations and that's, you know, a community to go to. Like they're talking about how, you know, other top competitors like a DigitalOcean or a Cloudways or a WP Engine, like they all, if you just look not very, very hard, you'll find uh, designated hate groups on those platforms. So it's not an easy issue, but again, it is very carefully I'm trying to position around when you have a CSR bend, when you have a community that expects certain levels of alignment toward, you know, frankly, non-hate groups, you know, there's a price to pay for that. You can't have it both ways. You just can't. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. We'll see how this unfolds. It seems like it's a, uh, the spice, the spice is a uh, high, a lot of hot takes. I mean, 173 comments, uh, 22 reposts on this. And this is like only like a week old. It's just interesting. It is. It is. I'll have to dig up the story. I do think there was an instance actually last year. I remember reading about, about Cloudflare, Cloudflare taking, uh, kicking off oh, yeah. an anti-trans platform. And I think their reasoning was it was kind of leading to like real world harm, like, like doxing and, uh, like swatting and like all sorts of like mm. crazy stuff. But mm. yeah, this is, I, I think this, this could be an interesting question to come back to because I think some of these infrastructure tools fly under the radar in like the content moderation, like web trust and safety debate, but are just as instrumental to the internet 
as a Facebook, as a Twitter, yeah. et mean, cetera. I'll say we've have we have had I mean previously Whole Whale's site was hosted on Pantheon. We migrated off. Uh we're currently migrating another one of our properties off of there. And I'll just be honest, like it was a 50-50, like this kind of pushed me over the edge of like whether to migrate and whether to stay. And that's like kind of getting back to like, oh, if I believe that this was like also supporting like you know, progressive infrastructure and help there. I may have stayed and been like, all right, I'll put up with like these things that are annoying me. But uh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't take much when you're a commoditized market called hosting, <laughs> called hosting a website, be it WordPress or Drupal, like there are others. And if they're, if you're going to differentiate, if you're going to differentiate on this type of messaging, I wouldn't betray it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true. I think that's true. We'll come back to this, but I want to take us into our next story. And George, this is an interesting one. This is uh, kind of <laughs> unusual for us in that this is actually uh, an almost more academic article, but we posted this from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. And the headline is, quote, news for the powerful and privileged, how misrepresentation and underrepresentation of disadvantaged communities undermine their trust in news. So this article has uh, kind of a long, a long analysis, a long methodology, and goes through this process of conducting interviews with folks all across the world, particularly in the global south, asking them about trust in news. And it seems to be that this distrust in news almost becomes cyclical. Underrepresented communities don't see themselves represented in news, in news stories, uh, they in turn engender a distrust of quote mainstream media and news, and and that that cycle just continues to kind of spiral, right? They I, a lot of a lot of folks interviewed seem to to view news as like elitist, more mainstream, particularly um, I would say Western news when talking about in general global South countries from what I gathered from this article. So George, news literacy is something at the top of our minds. It, goes hand in hand with things like digital media literacy, being able to identify uh, mis and disinformation, and a lot of the more trust and safety oriented topics we talk about on this podcast. What was your take on this article and why is uh, news literacy so important and what can we do to regain the trust of traditionally underrepresented communities in news? So it seems like the divide uh, can be pretty is pretty significant. Yeah, and as you mentioned, there's like a flywheel here, a flywheel effect of because you know you see coverage of communities being sometimes relentlessly they say relentlessly negative, and underrepresentation of the reporting staff and the people that you see bringing that information, and it it kind of continues where you just have less trust and less participation and so on. Uh, I think this is part of I think this is part of a larger trend of a shifting away of traditional news sources and media, which is both positive and negative and like, frankly, like beyond my ability to like comprehend the second and third order effects of it. Uh, one thing we have seen in other pieces is that uh, smaller media productions of, you know, podcasts actually also being sources of information where people are like, all right, I know, like, I know these folks, they are like me. I think they're a part of this community and they're going to report on things that are relevant to this community. So there may be a rise there. You know, we've seen, you know, great things out of PRX in the past of uh, increasing the voices 
of uh, previously marginalized groups. We have, you know, friends at Newslet, uh, newslet.org, which are helping that media literacy. Uh, I think there's important things, though, to, to look at, especially when you break down this, this flywheel, the five concerns. So, you know, if you're in this industry, go take a look at this article. Yeah, George, I think that's really important. Also, I think that as American observers, we have a little bit of a skewed understanding of global media ecosystems. We have, I mean, George, you're, you're based in, in, in California. I'm based in New York. There is an abundance of news sources and reporting about our communities. America has tons of news sources. Of course, we're seeing the collapse of kind of for-profit newsrooms in this country. We'll, we'll talk more about nonprofit newsroom models. But I think for much of the world, just the access to quality journalism is much, much more limited. I, in particular, spent some time in Eastern Europe. And while there are some great outlets doing great work, uh, students I was teaching uh, had essentially no reliable place to get accurate unbiased, you know, rigorous journalism in in their country. There's a severe lack of journalism as an infrastructure. And just from my knowledge, Eastern Europe, because it didn't exist (laughs) during the communist era, but I imagine in so many other parts of the world as well. So it's not, I think I would extrapolate this further to say it's not necessarily just a trust issue. It's also an access issue and actually an instance of, of privilege. So something again, to, to keep in mind. So yeah, we'll, we'll continue to talk about this news narrative actually right now, because we want to highlight the next story in our summary, which is uh, that uh, this is from newscentermain.com. A nonprofit group is looking to buy most newspapers in Maine. So there's this one publisher that owns a whole bunch of, of local local papers, and uh, it looks like they were looking for a buyer and they might have actually found one in the form of a nonprofit buyer, which is, which, is, which is fantastic. So I'm looking at the article here and the group, the nonprofit group that could potentially buy these outlets is called the Maine Journalism Foundation. And on Monday said they hope to buy Masthead Maine, which owns the Portland Press Herald, the state's largest daily newspaper, as well as 29 other daily and weekly papers. So it seems like we have a potential consolidation of main newspapers, but being spun into this nonprofit model for potential longevity and and stability. We've seen this as well at other major papers, including the Chicago Sun-Times, which became a nonprofit newspaper last year. So George, what do we think about this? I just, you know, I just thought these stories went well together, right? We're, We're talking about journalism. And how, you know, maybe it's maybe moving toward the domain of nonprofits for a number of reasons, but when you are able to maybe bring the inherent nonprofit trust, right, the annual Edelman surveys show that nonprofits of the four major pillars of where, you know, information reliably comes from is is higher than the other corporate media and government areas, the, the mixing of these may be one potential path forward and, you know, kind of interesting that all of Maine now may be under this, uh, this umbrella. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. I'll take us into our next story. And this one comes from Becker's hospital review. 
And the title of this story is that the, a House bill would give the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, authority over nonprofit hospitals. So we talk about nonprofit hospitals a lot on this program. We have some spicy takes on this, but it looks like lawmakers are reviving efforts to give the FTC authority to investigate nonprofit hospitals for anti-competitive behavior. So Representative Victoria Sparts, a Republican from Indiana, reintroduced a bill uh, just a couple weeks ago that would allow the FTC to enforce antitrust rules among the nation's more than 2,900 nonprofit hospitals. Uh, it's the bill's called Combating Hospital Monopolies Act. This is something I feel passionately about. I don't know. I I don't know the first thing about <laughs> like antitrust and anti-competitiveness uh, law, but I can say from my experience in New York, uh, particularly in the neighborhood I live in New York, there is such a thing as big hospital. And going from the the nurses strike just a couple months ago, which we covered on this podcast, they're not always super friendly. I feel like there needs to be some more regulation, some more oversight there, uh, especially for these hospitals, which operating as nonprofits get, you know, insane tax write-offs. George, what are your thoughts? Well, I I agree with you, actually. And I, I think we have seen coverage from, you know, New York Times and others showing the uh, multiple abuses across the country by nonprofit hospitals that fail to uphold their mission. They take advantage of uh, underserved populations that cannot afford services, use predatory means by which to collect when they, in fact, should not because they get a C3 de- deduction. They have done cost-cutting measures advised by top consulting firms uh, in the country to do so. And so just for fun, we in- installed a uh, AI on our on our Slack. And so this is through Claude and Anthropic.ai solution because uh, we love developing and playing with uh, cutting edge stuff. So this was rolled out recently, but I asked it for a hot take and it, it actually takes the, the counterpoint here and Claude makes the point that the bill's supporters fail to recognize nonprofit hospitals are not typical corporations. They do not have shareholders or lavishly compensate executives. Any market power they possess arises from serving communities that have no other options. Lawmakers should reject this bill and avoid imposing a one-size-fits-all approach to regulation that does not suit the unique role of nonprofit hospitals and says this would be a overreach by the FTC. I disagree, Claude. Uh, I disagree on that front uh, because of... Uh, the numerous abuses and the fact that if you're getting tax exempt status, you should perform in the public interest. And I think there's been enough violations to suggest that this would not be red tape, but important ways of operating. Take that, Claude. I agree. (laughs) Talk about a a straw man argument there. No, we're here for spicy takes. Uh, I happen to agree with you, so maybe it's good we have uh, a difference in opinion, the the resident contrarian, uh, to help us out formulate our thoughts. But no, I, I agree with you, George. Uh, but how about a feel-good story? Yeah, what do we got? What do we got? This comes from World Animal Protection. World Animal Protection is a longtime Hobel client. And uh, this article is about encouraging animal sentience laws across the world. So animal sentience is an important issue. And the laws that World Animal Protection advocates for are pushing for these laws that recognize that animals can feel, to some extent, emotion, joy, happiness, also grief, fear, and pain. And... 
these laws, this advocacy movement can help sure up and increase ethics inside of industries such as factory farming, wildlife trade, and entertainment industries. So uh, we love the work of the folks over at World Animal Protection. We love this kind of advocacy. We love animals. What's not to love? Yeah, I, I think this is also an interesting moment to be talking about sentience. And, you know, sometimes you blend into anthropomorphization. I definitely butchered that word. Anthropomorphization? I did make that up, but anthropomorphizing. Sort of. Animals and AI alike right now is actually happening, I think, on the AI front where we're like, oh, you know, like they act like a person and we can easily identify it. But, you know, I, I think well before we start talking about any rights for AI doing whatever, like let's take a look in our backyard at the, the sentient creatures uh, going on. And this is a, a great time to have that conversation. Uh, they also pull up other uh, countries that have uh, recognized this. So uh, I, I like this as a tact because it, it appeals to empathy. It appeals to how we we care for, for other things that we view uh, elements of ourselves in. All right, Nick, I have a question for you. Why, why did the nonprofit give up on their penny drive? What? Why did they give up on their penny drive? George, I don't know. Oh, Nick, it just didn't make sense. <laughs> well, that's what you get for making the end. Uh, thanks for joining us. Take care. Thanks, George. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 